0: in your scriptures to the sixth chapter of the gospel of Matthew while you're doing that it's time to uh, remind you if you don't aren't aren't especially fond of crowds we uh, do have Saturday evening services at 6 Monday evening services at 7 they are identical to the Sunday morning services and so uh, I would encourage you to go to those if it's an option for you. Um, we are now closing a series of messages on spiritual warfare. We are about to go into the third trimester of the transitional year of a 10 year process towards spiritual maturity. But before we do, we want to give you a few things to remember about spiritual warfare. There have been so many details. We've been preaching for four months about this. There are so many details. I want just to give you some simple things to hang on to if you can't remember all the details. Although I'm sure that the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind whatever you need during those times. But here are some simple things that I want you to remember. The most simple of all is to give God... Every day, the confidence that he will supply your needs. And then watch him do it. Verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. As to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now, before we go on to the next verse, when it says, do not be anxious for your life, that is a present Imperative. It's a continual thing, very much in the present. And it would imply, I know you are continually anxious now about something. Cut it out. Stop it. It's not necessary. That's for the present. Let me go on. Look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they and which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit to his life's span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, now that's a that's a rather abrupt <laughs> Insertion in such a beautiful picture. But the way that they baked their bread was to go out and gather those dried flowers out of the field and put it into their ovens. And that's what they're talking about. Will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Verse 31. Now watch this. Do not be anxious then. Now we've just changed verb tenses in the Greek. We've drawn from the present imperative, which implies that you are to stop doing something right now. This is the aorist subjunctive in the imperative. And everybody knows what that means. No. This says, essentially, it's not happening right now, but it will someday. And translated into English, this is, this is what to do when you get there. There may be things that you will worry about that you're not worried about right now, and you can decide right now how you're going to respond to them. This do not be anxious is for the future. All right? Do not be anxious then, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek... First, his kingdom. Now, that's in the present imperative again, and it means continually, repeatedly seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. That's the aorist subjunctive in the imperative again. For each tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has trouble enough of its own. Some very simple things to remember. Remember that as you enter into spiritual warfare, it is very important that you focus, but do not become fixated on any one aspect. You will notice, especially those of you who come from charismatic churches, that we have departed from the traditional spiritual warfare language. We started off by explaining the spirit world and by explaining things like deliverance and exorcism and the things that people usually associate with spiritual warfare. But then we started talking about cultural strongholds and interpersonal relationships and, and private warfare and so on and so forth. And you may have thought to yourself, we're getting off the track. Not at all. That is the track. Spiritual warfare is not one-dimensional. Spiritual warfare does not demand to be put into one quote spiritual category, while our emotional, physical, social selves stand by themselves. Satan is not confined to one quote spiritual category unquote. When we put on Christ, we do not just see Satan more clearly; we see everything more clearly. In the verse uh, in verse 22 in that same chapter last week, we talked about haplos. And about, when your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. That is a singular clarity, but it is not a fixated clarity. When, in other words, you put on a pair of glasses, you don't just see one thing more clearly. You see everything more clearly, don't you? Everything comes into focus more. So therefore, there's a wideness in God's focus. And when you face spiritual warfare, you must remember... That it's not just about Satan, it's not just about the spiritual part of your life, it's about all of your life. One of the great things that attracted me to Northland was its philosophy of ministry. And the, the awareness and the completeness with which they faced life. They've always been very serious about the Lord, but not confined to Christianese, not confined to spiritual language. I read in, this, in the Philosophy of Ministry, page 9, this. I like this. Taking Jesus as our model, it is foundational that we understand the subject of our efforts the person. Now listen to what it describes as the person. This is a large task for each person is a complexity of biological, social, Psychological, environmental, sexual, and spiritual factors, all of which contribute to the determining personality and response to life. One of the grand mistakes that I've seen Christians make, but I've never seen the Bible make, is fixating on one aspect of life and saying this is the spiritual aspect. Even when the Bible was talking about Jesus, when it described his maturing process in Luke. 2.52, it says, And he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with men. Just in that single sentence, there are four aspects of his life in wisdom, intellectual growth, in stature, physical growth, in favor with God, in relational growth, and with men, social growth. You understand? The Bible never confined itself to one area of life and said, I declare this spiritual. All of life is spiritual. And the mistake that we make is trying to translate all of life into a very narrow um, um, language. It's a good language, it's an encouraging language, it's a valid language. But it's not unlike cheerleading at a, at a, at a football game. Um, sometimes it matches and sometimes it doesn't match what's going on in the field. <laughs> Becky Becky's teaching at a new school this year and she came out of her classroom the other day and, and heard that cheerleaders were practicing. And she heard this phrase, okay, we're number two, ready, hit it. And it caught her attention, we're number two, you know, and this is the cutest cheer, listen to this, we're number two, we're number two, we're number two, (laughs) not, isn't that cute? And then it goes, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one, deal with it. Isn't that cute? (laughs) I was like, that's so cute. You know that's how a lot of religious language is. You know when we use religious language, it's 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 got a lot of confidence in it, and we like it, and we're attracted to it. You know, it's it's great. But you and I have both been to football games where the cheers did not match the performance on the field. As a matter of fact, they were kind of losing touch with what was going on in the field. I've I've seen football games where our defense was out there, and the, and the offense was just pushing them all around the field, and the and the cheerleaders were going push them back, push them back, way back, push them back, push. Ha. You know, we're proud of you boys, we're proud of you boys, you know. And you just think, well, somebody's kind of lost touch here. Well, Christians get the same way when they, when they confine themselves, when they fixate themselves to one narrow view of spirituality, especially when we're talking, when we're talking about what spiritual warfare is. And the other mistake, one of the other mistakes we make is to think that spiritual warfare is about Satan. Spiritual warfare is not at all about Satan. It's only initially about Satan. What spiritual warfare is about is the great truth that God wants to allow to come into our lives through the battles he allows in our lives. That's what spiritual warfare is about. Spiritual warfare is always positive because God is always positive. Sometimes we need to battle. Sometimes we need to face tough times. But God allows it because of the benefit that can only come from that spiritual warfare. Socrates, when he looked at the city of Athens, described Athens like this. Athens is like a great thoroughbred horse which because of its immense size is inclined toward laziness therefore it needs a gadfly to disturb it so that it will get its proper exercise and go on toward its greatness now socrates saw himself as that gadfly and that's the role that he took ask very uncomfortable questions do you all remember what happened to socrates at a little hemlock party. Why? Because this society never learned that the goal of those questions was not pain, but truth. And therefore, they turned upon the object of the pain rather than ever reaching the deeper truth that he meant for them to see. Those of you who are familiar with, with the history of the people of God know the same exact thing happened to all the prophets. Jesus said that. You have stoned the prophets who came to disturb you to greatness. You know exactly what happened to Jesus Christ that came to disturb us to greatness. Well, do you know what? Satan does not play a much different role in God's overall plan than the prophets did. Certainly, his intent is more malevolent. Theirs was much more benevolent. But the role that he plays in the role that God has given him is to be able to disturb our lives because all of us are inclined toward laziness. But what I've seen Christians do again and again and again and again is to make up an entire theology of warfare against Satan, but yet leave the construction. Theology of what we are to accomplish for God impoverished. Let me show you in Scripture, John 17. Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer. In verse 15 he says, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. But he does not stop there. Look at verse 17. where we are to go when we get past the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 19. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. You understand what's happening? We are not in spiritual warfare to focus on Satan. We are always to focus on the truth. The greater truth that God wants to bring us in our affliction, in our battles. That's where we are to go. That's where we're going the next quarter, and the next year, and the next year after that. To look for that greater truth. Very important. Next, I want you to remember that spiritual warfare inclines us to inactivity. Because we begin to think, when well, our God's got to do this and I can't do anything. That's not at all what this is saying, especially in the present. What this is saying is, I want you to go ahead and be active. Just don't be anxious about it. Do you know how many people I've heard misread this scripture in saying, well, God will provide, therefore I don't have to do anything? You ever hear a Christian say that? Well, I'm just going to go on faith. I don't have to have any thoughts of my own. I'll just get the old frontal lobotomy and just go on out and be a good Christian I want when I believe in God that means to stop thinking and stop working well that's not at all what it means. God never said to stop working as a matter of fact if you've ever watched the birds you will know that they're not lazy creatures sometimes I sit for hours in my yard and watch the birds. I love to do that just watch the observe the birds he says to. Them, and you sit out there and you watch them. I have yet to see a bird go up in a tree and go like this. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Little ones do when the mama comes. But the big ones are down there looking for the worms. See? They're working. They're building nests and so on and so forth. The difference is they're not worried about it. They're just not worried about it. Christians, you can work. Work. It says in... in in uh, um First Thessalonians four eleven. Let me let me show that to you, just in case you need this. To you have a lazy brother in law or something like that. You want to quote scripture. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. That's good for a nosy sister in law too. <laughs> and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. Very important in. uh um, um oh rat uh 2 Corinthians 4:10 or 1 Corinthians 4. 10. is The 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians. No, no, 3:10, 3:10, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 3:10. It says, "He who does not work, what?" The neat Pretty simple formula there, isn't it? So, so the Bible is is don't saying is is not saying stop work. What the Bible here is doing is making a differentiation between a work ethos and a work pathos. A work ethos is an objective characteristic that is a part of our character that says, yeah, we just go out, we're, we're productive people. We're productive people. Pathos, though, is the feeling and the misery that comes with, with feeling horrible about work. I hate working. And the Bible says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't worry about, oh, I just wonder what's going to come out of this work. The Bible saying, don't do that. Enjoy what God has made you for. The birds enjoy what God made them for. Flowers enjoy producing. Listen, don't. I haven't worked for twenty years. I've I've just got to confess this to you. I have not worked for twenty years. Now there are times at the end of the day when I'm so tired I could literally throw up. I I literally could, And and I'm sure you're that way too. But I don't call it work you know i enjoy every minute of what i do and that's what jesus is saying here be productive the way to fight satan is not to get in a defensive position presently it's to be productive for god one time they came to uh, albert uh, uh, i'm sorry um oh the guy the light bulb guy edison edison <laughs> And he was, he was kind of eccentric, you know, and every day he'd work 20 hours in this laboratory. I mean, this guy just was there every day, and they said, they came to him, they were, they were worried about and said, Thomas, you need a, you need a vacation. He was hard to hear, and said, what? He said, you need a vacation. What do you mean? Well, just, just go somewhere. Just relax. Just, just do something that you will enjoy. He said, what are you talking about? They said, listen, don't worry about the money. Tomorrow morning, you get up and you decide where you would want to go, where you would enjoy more than any place on the face of this earth and we'll send you there. Guess where he went? Back in the laboratory. That's where he wanted to go. See? He had to work ethos without the work pathos. And that's what scripture's saying. Work and enjoy. That's what it's saying. And it's also saying this. Be sure that you enjoy because You don't have to worry about the details. The same God that has an entire plan for you down here, that can provide for you in big ways, can also provide for you in small ways. We have, basically, most of us, a functioning deistic theological model in our heads. We really believe that God started it off and then stepped back and said, It's all up to you. We really believe them. And so we say, okay, we'll just take over these details. And then we get covered up with the worry of the details. In Matthew 13, it talks about the seed that starts to grow. And then the cares of the world chokes out that seed. That's exactly what we do with the Lord God. Okay, God, I believe in you. I believe in your plan. I think it's great. I'll take over the details. You don't have to worry about a thing. I'll worry about everything. It's just the reverse of how it ought to be. Did you ever hear the phrase, the devil's in the details? You bet he is. When we take him back over, that's how he gets in. You know, in the First World War, they were having a terrible time with German U-boats, the submarines. And they went to Will Rogers, the humorist, the American humorist. And they said, Mr. Rogers, what would you do about this problem with submarines? And Will Rogers says, I've got a simple answer. I don't know why you haven't thought about it before. Well, what is it? Boil the ocean. If, he says, if you boil the ocean, every one of them will have to come to the surface. As soon as they come to the surface, you shoot them. So it's that simple. Next question. How do you boil the ocean? He said, look, I can't do everything for you guys. I gave you the solution. You think of the detail. That's how we picture God. It's a great idea, God. How do I do it? No, God's in the details also. You understand? And we need to be able to rely upon Him for the details. See, Satan can't have an effect on our lives if He never gets the floor. If we continue to go back to God with everything that comes to us, that is how we keep Satan out. Now two more things and then I want, then I want to quit. First of all, when the Bible ships, ships, From the present, going to God with all the present details of our life, to the future, it doesn't shift strategy. It keeps on the same strategy. Therefore, be not anxious. In other words, you can make the plans right now you need to make, no matter what the situation is in the future, no matter what your spiritual battle is as to how you're going to respond. You can make those plans right now. And all of those plans can be thus. That Jesus is not only the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of the universe. He is the beginning and the end of every problem you have. You don't have to wait to get to the end to see Jesus. When those decisions come upon you, you say, Lord, I know you allowed this in my life. Now show me the end of it. Show me what you want me to do with it. In Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, there are three people, at at least, that are thrown on an island. And they think that they may well be there alone. This landing company, this ship wrecks, and this landing company is there. and, And this conversation takes place between three people. And they begin to have this conversation, now that they believe that they're the only ones on the island, how to rule the island. Now, Gonzalo, who's a wise man, usually... Begins to say, begins to, to, to do the old, If I Rule the World. Remember that song by Tony Bennett, If I Rule the World? Oh, he's a, some of you are way too young for, to remember that. But but it's a great song, If I Rule the World. Gonzalo begins to say, If I were king of this island, this is how I'd run it. And he says, essentially, there would be no forced labor, there would be no Um, higher than anybody else, completely egalitarian society. Uh, As a matter of fact, all men would be idle and all women would be idle but very pure and innocent and we would just live off the natural abundance of the land and that's how I would rule completely naturally and there would be no magistrate, no ruler. Well, at this point, Sebastian breaks in And he asked the question that Gonzalo missed. Wait a minute, I thought he was going to be a ruler and that's how things got arranged like this. And then Antonio says this line, and I love this line. He forgets, I'm sorry, the latter end of his commonwealth forgets the beginning. It is very, very appropriate That we see ourselves as forgetting who arranged the world like it did, like it was, and believing that everything from now on ought to happen naturally. It is not true. For things, it is all, it's one of those great paradoxes of life. But the stronger and wiser leadership you have, the more things happen naturally. And the weaker the leadership is, the more the natural process turns into chaos. There has never been a society in this world without leadership that has not destroyed a good part of itself. Well, how do you think we can live spiritually without taking to God every decision there is? We can't. The stronger God's leadership in our life is, the more natural our abundance in that life. Now, one more thing, then I'll quit. How do you know... How do you know when you've really won the war? How do you know when Satan is beaten? Because you have peace, because you're relaxed, because nothing bothers you anymore? (laughs) Let me know if that happens. No. This is the way. Totally characteristic of God. You know by what you produce, by what you give. That's how you know. God so loved the world that he gave. That's how you know. When we can continue to give, when we can continue to produce, despite all the battles in our lives, then we know we've won. When we can continue to give, not as we could afford, but as God can afford. When we can continue to give as God gives, then we know Satan has not stopped us. Then we know we are producing something for God, and that is what winning spiritual warfare is. Let me tell you a story. Mark Tidd, I think was his name, was a seminary student in upstate New York. And he lived in student housing, which wasn't very good. For those of you who ever lived in student housing, you know that wasn't very good. It was in a rather poor section of town. And it was a little apartment in a larger house. And one morning, he and his wife heard a knock at the back door. Since it wasn't a very good neighborhood, they went and creaked that door open just a few inches and peered out. And on that back porch was this old man with glazed eyes, furrowed face, gray, bristled uh, whiskers, holding a basket of dirty not very appetizing vegetables wanting to sell them well they didn't know whether he was drunk or you know what the deal was but but they said okay so they bought the they bought the vegetables just to get rid of the guy and were greatly relieved when he left however much to their chagrin 3 days later the same knock on the door and they opened the door and here the old guy is again and they notice as they did not notice last time that the glazed look in his eyes was not from alcohol, but from cataracts. They notice how he's dressed. It's it's pitiful, really. They look down at his feet. He's got two right shoes on. But he's holding the same basket full of a few dirty vegetables and he wants to sell them again. Well, they invite him in. It turns out that he lives in a shack and he makes his living by... Eating the own, his own vegetables that he's raised and 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 selling the few that he can. Turns out that he's a Christian. He loves the Lord and he loves to talk about the Lord. And he's not only a Christian, he's a harmonica playing Christian. And he whips out his harmonica and just toots out a few gospel songs. His name was Mr. Roth. And so almost we- weekly, Mr. Roth would come back and talk about the Lord and and toot out a few gospel songs and sell a few vegetables and one day he came into the kitchen with a great big smile on his face and just as he was about to toot out a gospel song he said i want to tell you god is so good and the couple said that's right mr roth god is good he said no you don't understand god is so good because of how he provides for his children They said, well, what happened? He said, well, I walked out of my shed today, and there was a whole bag of clothes and shoes and everything. And they said, Mr. Roth, that is wonderful. We could not be more happy. And he said, wait a minute, you haven't heard the whole story yet. God's even more wonderful than you think. Just yesterday, I met some people that could really use those. pray with me God keep us focused on the Lord Jesus Christ on how he gave and who he was and how he gave because of who he was for those in here who would love to live like Jesus let them right now invite him to come into their heart And say, Lord, I've lived apart from you. I don't want to anymore. I accept forgiveness and I want you to make of my life whatever you want. Today, let me walk with you forever. For all of us, Lord God, help us not to concentrate on the little ways that Satan tries to snipe at us or even the larger ways he tries to intimidate us. But help us to keep on keeping on, loving you, giving as you give, being creative and producing as you do. For Satan's ultimate defeat comes in a world where there's no more room for for him because there's too much good being done. Help us to be a part of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.